Hi, everyone. My name is Aram Arslanian, and welcome to the second episode of our podcast. I'm a coach who's worked globally with leaders and teams from the C-suite to the front lines on leadership and communication. Prior to this, I worked as a clinical counselor in the not-for-profit sector with a focus on addictions and mental health. My entire career has been about helping people, and along the way, I've seen a lot of triumphs and also some pretty tough things. I founded Cadence Leadership and Communication to support organizations in building a better workplace. And I believe this starts by having a strong understanding of ourselves and others at the center of our approach to work. My goal with this podcast is to explore real-life struggles that impact the workplace and create a dialogue around them. I want to take on the topics that we may avoid, because where there's silence, there's missed opportunity. We can build a better workplace, and we do that by opening up the lines of communication. For this episode, I wanted to discuss a delicate and very important topic, returning to work after experiencing a traumatic event. Many people will experience a tragic or life-altering event in their personal lives, and with that comes the question of what to do about work. For many people, there isn't an option to take time off to heal. For those who do have that option, the time away may not be enough to fully process the resulting emotional impact. Today's interview will discuss what we need to know about balancing our careers and our health while coping with a traumatic event. So, welcome to Episode 2, and this is One Step Beyond. Today we're speaking with Christian Monks, who is a registered clinical counselor who has a private practice here in Vancouver. Christian has worked as a child and family therapist for nearly a decade and was a clinical coordinator at a not-for-profit before moving to full-time private practice. He's been trained in a variety of approaches to working with trauma, and today we're going to really be unpacking what it means for someone who has experienced trauma outside of work. So this could be a life event that has deeply impacted them, such as loss of a family member, a serious accident, assault, any of the various things that can happen in life that would lead to trauma. Yet someone who has experienced this has to return to work, either because they don't have any kind of leave that would give them the time to take to process the trauma, or because that time has been used up and they have to return to work. In this conversation, we're going to be first really identifying what is trauma and unpacking that. Next, we're going to talk about if you're someone who has experienced this, what are some of the things you should be thinking about in your return to work? And what are some of the things that you could be experiencing? And finally, we're going to look at it from the perspective of an employer and a leader. And what are the ways that we can support people on our teams in returning to work in a healthy manner? So let's start off. Christian, uh, in that intro, is there anything you'd like to add to that? No, I think as we go along, Rem, um, I appreciate the uh, speaking on this topic. Uh, trauma is dear to my heart in terms of how to work with it. I really do think that if we better understand trauma, we are going to uh, really improve the lives of others. So thank you for okay, the opportunity. Cool. Yeah, definitely. You know, the reason that I want to talk about this uh, in my work as an executive coach, people talk to me a lot about it. So for example, Sometimes leaders who I'm working with will talk about a team member of theirs who's saying, you know, 
they've had this very serious thing happen in their life. How can I help? Or, you know, their performance is a little off. Is this due to their experience or is this just something to do with their, with their work style? And can I actually work with them on it? And I also have it brought up to me by people who have experienced um, a really serious life event looking for support. And the more that I've thought about it, the more the, the idea that I just want to break down the stigma of talking about this mm-hmm. and make this just an open conversation for people. We all know people have really tough life events that happen, painful things that might take them years to overcome. And very few people have the luxury. And, and maybe this isn't even a good thing for them to not work. Many people have to work, mm-hmm. stay at work, even through terrible life events. So my perspective is the more that we can just have open conversation about this, the more that we can normalize, not just the experience of someone having something like this, but the ways that we can help, mm. that we don't just have to back off, but we can be in the mix with them in the right way. Mm. Sounds great. Okay. So uh, the first question, and this is one that I get all the time, maybe even weekly, uh, very often leaders ask me, what is trauma? And the way that I'll pitch the question to you is this, is there a difference between a traumatic event versus someone just having a really painful experience? Well, I mean, I think I think of two definitions of trauma. Um, So to differentiate between whether or not trauma is a painful event or whether it's just a tough day. uh, One definition of trauma, this comes from Peter Levine and uh, Dr. Gabba Mate also talks about this as being a disconnection to the self. So something, some experience comes along that the effect is that you're no longer connected to the self. And then that raises some interesting questions of what does that mean by the self? And so one of the things that I've been exploring uh, in my work is how trauma is associated with disconnection to the feelings. Okay. Can you tell me more about that? Sure. So perhaps when we think about one nice way to think about these feelings is that when you're born into this world as an infant, you know, we don't question the fact that we have the capacity to breathe. We don't question the, that we have the capacity to feed. Mm-hmm. But we're also born with feelings. And we're born with anger. We're born with sadness. We're born with fear, disgust, excitement. Mm-hmm. So those are the type of feelings that when we are, uh, uh, have access to that uh, throughout our life, then we have the capacity to adapt mm-hmm. and communicate to you know, ourself and others. And so, but what happens in trauma is somewhere along the way, sometimes through childhood or what have you, that ability to be able to be connected to your feelings is no longer available because either the, the parent pulls away or, uh, or you, you do experience some kind of form of abuse. Mm-hmm. So one way for us to understand trauma is based on that fact that uh, there is uh, this disconnect to the feelings. And so in the work that I do, what we would try to do is reconnect to help, help people to get connected to the feelings. Okay. So could we say then um, to really crystallize what trauma uh, would be for our listeners would be a painful experience would still be painful. It's, it's not to minimize the pain of an experience, but something that would be a traumatic event would actually create a separation between who you are, like yourself. Mm-hmm. And your ability to connect to who you are and the ability to connect to your feelings. Right. Was that, was that correct? Exactly. Okay. So, you know, the interesting thing about feelings is that um, we feel first before we think. Right. So there's a reason for that. Um, right. Again, go back to the infant. The infant 
doesn't ha- think, doesn't even have the capacity to walk, but has the capacity to feel. Mm-hmm. So that just shows you where the feelings exist. They exist close to the limbic system in the brain. And so as a result of that, we need the feelings as we uh, navigate our life. Okay. So because uh, I was going to ask you, what's the outcome of, of that disconnect between the self or the feeling? So what's the outcome for a person who's experiencing trauma? Uh, well, I mean, I think what ends up happening is, is that the person who has been traumatized is able to cope, is able to regulate through life mm-hmm. um, up until they get it close up to the certain triggers mm-hmm. that might be associated with the trauma. And then at that point, um, there's a form of dysregulation that happens uh, that causes the individual to no longer be integrated but more reactive in their response. Okay. And so if I understand this right, someone who's experienced trauma, once they've experienced the trauma, they can go back into normal life. They can engage. They can be with family and friends. They can be back in the work world. And they might not even notice that they've had this separation. Right. However, um, there may be things that trigger them to, uh, that re-trigger this trauma. And in that, they don't have access to a broad range of emotions that they usually would have. They'd only have um, access to a very small range of emotions. Yeah, or that um, what often happens is, is it like, you know, it's that it's not that they, they don't have access to those emotional states. It's that what my experience has been is that it's also really very much coupled up with anxiety. Okay. So at that point, um, there's this simultane- almost simultaneous experience whereby the, the feelings needed there to navigate whatever that is. I mean, we, again, we feel first before we think. So the feeling is there. It's always in operation. Right. Um, but then if we don't know how to make space for that because of its association to, you know, uh, whatever triggering event that is, then we usually, what my experience has been is that we couple that up with the anxiety. Right. Uh, it's sort of a negative thought process that okay. is coupled up. And so that's... One really interesting thing about trauma is is its strong relationship to anxiety, shame, and guilt. Okay, so what's the result then? And uh, as a sidebar, um, I'm very interested. In in fact, before we we get to the result, what does it mean to be triggered? And because this is something I get asked a lot about, Mm. um, and we've used this term already. So Mm. what does it mean to be triggered? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, triggered is this reaction, physiological reaction, heartbeat increases, uh, the breathing becomes dysregulated, uh, could be heat to the face. Um, you know, there's a physiological response, but the body is activated in this, it's in, in a reactive state, which another way to, for us to understand that is that the sympathetic or the fight or flight response system that is responsible for, uh, survival uh-huh. is now being asked to problem solve in situations where, uh, there isn't the real threat. Okay. So how do people become triggered? Well, let's just say, let's use an example. Um, you know, if, for example, we have uh, been bitten by a dog mm-hmm. and that was a traumatic event, mm-hmm. then what happens is, is that we have the survival evolutionary strategy that doesn't say that, oh, I was bitten by a Doberman or, you know, a Chihuahua. Mm-hmm. I was bitten by dogs. And right. so then what ends up happening is, is that uh, in this example, then we, whenever we see a dog, we have this like strong reaction to it. Right, right. So, uh, and so this can happen for some people who experience trauma is that they could apply an event in a much broader context 
And then when you come across anything in that broader context, it could create this fight or flight triggering, which then, you know, it goes, you um, accelerated heart rate, you get into fight or flight mode, and then you're really just left with fight or flight responses where prior to a traumatic event, you would usually have a broad range of responses to it. That's correct. Okay. Right. So what's the outcome? Um, being a therapist and what you've seen in your time, when people have experienced trauma and they've got this um, uh, triggers that, that they're experiencing, what's the outcome for them when they're engaging in everyday life? Well, I mean, I think one way to look at it is, is that one of the outcomes is that they're actually resilient, mm -hmm. uh, that they function yeah. and, you know, they cope and they manage and they work. And, you know, it's, it's the, the degree of impairment isn't necessary or it's not that much mm -hmm. to go and deal with it. And, right. you know, one of the things to think about is that the very things that we compensate to be disconnected to our feelings work. Right, right, right. Up until certain, you know, and I never know exactly when this is, but until it stops working. So coping strategies continue to work and manage. And there's a lot of people out there that I'm sure have had overwhelming experiences that don't need therapy and are managing their trauma very well. Right, right, right. Yeah. I love, by the way, that you just went into the idea of people being resilient. Mm -hmm. And one of the things around this whole podcast is... Uh, not to increase stigma around people who experience trauma as being broken or damaged or there's something wrong with them. That, in fact, many people, as they experience trauma, carry on with their lives mm -hmm. and they function mm -hmm. very well. They get a lot of stuff done. And part of that uh, can also be a defense mechanism kicking in and mm -hmm. that they're you know pushing those things down or tamping them down and continuing forward. And they work really well until they don't. Mm -hmm. So what happens when they don't? Well... That's where the variety comes in because um, sometimes it's panic attacks, mm. right? So that, uh, you know, your ability to manage those triggers is now absolutely offline and, you know, you have a panic attack is one common symptom that kind of reveals that, you know, the coping strategies are no longer there. Um, another one is sleep is being affected. Mm. Um, you know, it's really difficult to fall asleep. Uh, concentration, uh, I think... If it's really, if one is really quite triggered and is struggling, then your ability to focus on the task at hand is being affected because again, you're not in that um, connected state. You're in this kind of more of a flight or fight mm -hmm. response. Uh, so relationships, I think another really strong indicator is, is that your ability to experience trust or safety in the relationship is also being impacted. Um, so that's, you know, another thing I, that, is a symptom mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes the addictive behaviors, the very things that help us to, uh, you know, disconnect from feelings, the addiction, you mm -hmm. know, if it's a compensation, mm -hmm. um, becomes, you know, unmanageable. Right. Uh, so there's a variety of ways that, you know, people are, when they're no longer coping, uh, you know, it's almost like their environment is telling them now it's time to pay attention to uh, the trauma because they're no longer able to manage those aspects right. of their life right so it becomes unmanageable right so uh, a few things that i heard there when people are ex have experienced a trauma they can and again to be really clear not everyone who's experienced uh, a trauma is going to experience these things mm -hmm. and um, many people are capable of processing a trauma and, and managing in their own life and mm -hmm. finding their own resolve and not everyone else mm -hmm. and so um, to not put these on everyone but that some people do experience 
uh, difficulties with their relationships. Mm -hmm. And what would a difficulty in a relationship look like if you were to experience trauma? Well, I think one of the things that happens in terms of difficulty in relationships is that, um, and this kind of opens up a bigger topic around, but just to kind of touch on it briefly, is that uh, our capacity to feel and deal, um, you know, being able to feel safe and secure in the relationship is not there. Uh, and so there's, we misread. Um, the trauma often can lead to misreading um, what's happening there in the relationship. And so, um, so, you know, like we might be really reactive. Or, or you know, another really good example um, is that if we go along this idea that trauma is a disconnection to the feelings, then what happens to somebody who doesn't have access to their anger, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, if we use the classic example of a, a male growing up in a home mm -hmm. with a father and the father says, well, you know, boys don't cry, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, sadness is for weaklings or whatever that may look like. Mm -hmm. That boy gets, you know, gets communicated that dad's love is going to be pulled away if I get angry right. or, or sad or whatever that may be. Right. And so then when we get fast forward into the relationship later on, you know, 15 years later, 20 years, where we need to start setting boundaries in a relationship with our loved one, we might really have some difficulty about saying no. Right. Right. Because it's coupled up with anxiety or, and, you know, or we might have a really strong reaction to our partners. No. So that's one of the ways in which, you know, uh, trauma, you know, developmental trauma, if you will, can mm -hmm. impact uh, relationships. Okay. Um yeah, that's that's interesting because we can see like a lot of these applications in the work world where some of these ideas that after experiencing trauma and just in real life um, outside of the work world, um, it can impact all sorts of different things within the work world. It could impact your working relationships, how you digest and hear information, mm -hmm. how, you, how your takes might be on a conversation. It can cause you to be to have panic attacks, mm -hmm. a difficulty processing feeling and emotion in the moment. Mm -hmm. And uh, difficulty just being in the day mm -hmm. and not getting caught up in recurring thoughts and, and kind of secular thinking. Right. So let's talk about uh, now, because I, I feel we have a good sense of how we would look at trauma. And really in the most basic way, what we would say is it's a disconnection from the self. Mm -hmm. That when someone has experienced a, a significant trauma in their life, it is really losing their ability to be connected to who they are, what their emotions are, mm -hmm. and, and be in that space. Mm -hmm. It can impact the way that they digest information. Mm -hmm. It can impact their relationships and how they are able to function with another or others. Mm -hmm. um, it can cause uh, secular thinking or intrusive thinking mm -hmm. and panic attacks. Mm -hmm. um, is there anything else you want to add to that around what trauma is? Yeah. Um... I also think it's really strong, like it's really important to emphasize that trauma is also, in my experience, very much associated with anxiety. Okay. Um, and it's that thought process, that kind of negative um, thought cycle that we can get ourselves involved in. So, you know, to add more to the, the definition of trauma, uh, it's to realize that there's this association with anxiety, shame, and guilt, and the purpose behind those um, you know, if you think about it, you're not born with anxiety, shame, and guilt. They come later on in our development. Right. And so they're, you know, they're there for, an, for kind, of a, kind of a specific reason to help us to inhibit mm -hmm. hope for social cohesion. Um, but what we've tended to do is to use this hammer and apply to all these other, you know, aspects, you know, even if it's a tool, 
the hammer doesn't fix the teacup very well. Right. Um, you know, so I think it's really important that we there, there's this connection between trauma and and how we inhibit those feelings through anxiety, shame, and guilt. Uh, and then also to also realize that there's a series of behaviors that are associated to managing the anxiety. Okay. So those behaviors are very interesting. Um, in, in our society, uh, some of these behaviors are actually really approved or valuable. You know, like overworking mm-hmm. can be, an, you know, a way of compensating to manage the anxiety. Right. Perfectionism mm-hmm. is another thing that can help us to manage this anxiety. The addictive behaviors uh, that can come alongside it also. Like negative thinking, critical th- thought about self and other, intellectualizing. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a series of behaviors that are also very much associated with managing the anxiety. And both of those, the, the uh, inhibitory emotions of anxiety, shame, and guilt, and the defenses, um, the behaviors that are associated um, with managing the anxiety, shame, and guilt are the th- things that help us to stop connecting to the feelings. And so those are other markers, if you will, that help us to track the trauma. Yeah, and to really clearly capture this, because this is, a, I believe, a just super important point, especially for people considering returning to work or for leaders who are um, leading people who have experienced trauma. We're, I'm hearing two things that are very specific. Um, guilt and shame mm-hmm. and what you were referring to as inhibitory feelings. Mm-hmm. They're a defense mechanism that pushes down the trauma. Yes, push it down the feelings okay. that would be associated. If we had access to those feelings, mm-hmm. then the feelings are the very means in which we can overcome or heal from the trauma. Right. So the trauma is actually in some ways like one of the byproducts of the traumatic experience is that we don't have access to those feelings. And right. we need those feelings to work. Right. <laughs> we need those feelings to navigate relationships. Right. Uh, you know, you need anger to be able to set down boundaries. Right. 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 You need sadness to accept things that you can't change. Right. Right. You need fear because, well, it would be really dangerous to walk out into the world without looking both ways. <laughs> right. Right. Like, so you need these, yeah. these things to help us function in society. Right. Um, yeah, and I, 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 this point is incredibly important uh, for people to really get that around trauma, there are all of these feelings that are a result of that trauma, but then we have these inhibitory feelings that push those yes. feelings down, those That's feelings right. that are associated with the trauma. Yes. We need those feelings to help us actually process the trauma. That's right. But our defense mechanism says, whoa, 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 that, that's too much. Mm-hmm. That's too painful. It's going to overwhelm us. It's like um, uh, if we let those feelings come up, who knows what's going to happen? So we have inhibitory feelings that push them down. And those feelings, again, were... Anxiety, shame, and guilt. Anxiety, shame, and guilt. And one of the things I'd like to um, really suggest for our listeners here, if you are someone who has experienced trauma, Mm -hmm. and that's the playground that you're in right now, anxiety, shame, guilt... I encourage you to not double down on those feelings by saying there's something wrong with me, like... They're right. Oh my Mm -hmm. gosh, I'm such a bad person for having these. Mm -hmm. In fact, this is your defense mechanism kicking in. This Mm -hmm. is your mind saying, no, 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 I'm going to take care of you. Mm -hmm. So the interesting thing here is your mind is trying to help you, yet it's helping you by taking something away from you, which is your connection to those feelings that are as a result of that trauma. But that's just one part of it because then we're hearing the behaviors that that come in from that to manage the anxiety, Mm -hmm. uh, guilt, and shame. Mm -hmm. And those, what were those behaviors again? Well, there's a, I mean, that's the interesting thing. The behaviors um, that are associated with those inhibitory emotions, um, th- I mean, there's so many. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, but to go through like a bit of a, lo- a list that I've seen that um, it's perfectionism, uh, procrastination, mm. irritability, mm. 
smiling when you're talking about something serious, mm. right? Right, right. You know, that's an, always a very interesting one. You're talking about your past, you're talking about really tragic events, and you're smiling, you're laughing. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah that I mean, that's something that can um, be a marker. Mm -hmm. uh, negative thinking of mm -hmm. the self or other. Mm -hmm. So again, that's kind of coupled up with the anxiety. Right. Uh, procrastination, mm -hmm. irritability, mm -hmm. uh, suicide, mm -hmm. ideation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Uh, the... Um, overeating, undereating, overworking, numbness, yeah. uh, avoiding eye contact. Yeah. Yeah. So all of these are behaviors that are used to manage anxiety, mm -hmm. shame, and guilt. Yeah. And the anxiety, shame, shame, and guilt are inhibitory feelings pushing down trauma. That's right. Um, We're pushing down the, the feelings that are associated with the trauma. Pushing down the feelings that are associated with the trauma. So when we were to say that the, the trauma causes a disconnect between... Um, us and the self and our feelings, it's not to suggest that, that we become these unfeeling mm -hmm. um, people. And that can happen. Some people can go in that direction. Um, it is to say that we still feel, but those feelings, um, so again, anxiety, shame, guilt, mm -hmm. these are feelings that are a defense mechanism and you can really feel them. You can mm -hmm. feel them deeply. Mm -hmm. So the idea that when we're saying there's not, not a connection to those feelings, it's the feelings that are associated with the trauma, the ones that would help us deal with those things. Mm -hmm. Instead, it's been replaced by a defense mechanism that can still feel overwhelming, can still feel too much. Yet, those aren't the feelings that are going to help us through. And mm -hmm. then there are these behaviors that are associated with managing all of those things. Mm -hmm. uh, anything else you want to add in around trauma? Yeah, so just to, I so appreciate how you mentioned that people need to be compassionate to themselves mm -hmm. and not double down on the anxiety, shame, and guilt. For mm -hmm. sure. I so agree with that piece. And you know what? We're actually talking about, uh, and for your audience, they can also you know look for it online, that there is a visual diagram. This is called the change triangle. Mm -hmm. And if um, people can just imagine an inverted triangle where the point is down, mm -hmm. in one corner are these defenses uh, associated with you know behaviors and that's in one corner and there's the would that would that be the bottom corner no that's not the bottom that's okay. it we're sorry we're at the top of the triangle okay right okay so thank you for that so in one corner would be the defenses the series of behaviors that are associated with regulating uh the anxiety shame and guilt and then so we would suggest in the audience look at left or the right right so, okay yeah. yeah okay that's great okay yeah. so uh in the top right you would have the defenses the behaviors that included perfectionism and overworking and numbness and overeating mm -hmm. and uh, and that's in one corner. Mm -hmm. And then in the left corner, you would have uh, the in inhibitory emotions of anxiety, shame, and guilt. Okay. And it's true that we do feel those, but yeah. we don't want to, as you said, we don't want to double down on those. Even if those are feelings, that's not what we want to deepen. Yeah. Right? I mean, they're just, they're maladaptive. They, we get stuck in those places. Right. Uh, right. And then at the bottom of that triangle, right? So the third point that points down are the these core emotions mm -hmm. the anger the sadness the fear the excitement the joy the pride the love and those are the healing emotions those are the ones that we're born with and those are the ones that we want to deepen to heal mm. and those are the ones that are also shut off due to the trauma okay so when someone's experienced a trauma and we talk about these emotions being pushed down this is where we could see our ability to feel happiness or joy or satisfaction actually be trapped down with that trauma that has been suppressed by those inhibitory emotions. How long can that state last? Uh, well, 
I think that uh, until there's healing, uh, that state can last to the grave. Okay. So someone could conceivably, unless they're able to process that trauma and release that broader range of emotions, mm-hmm. someone essentially could possibly live their life without having full range or full access to the range of emotions, without being able to feel true satisfaction without being able to feel true joy or true happiness, and without being able to feel true contentment. That's right. You know, um, the very things that helped us to get through the, the trauma, the compensations, mm-hmm. um, we start thinking that's who we are. Right, right. Um, so this is a point where I want to go to our to our listeners here, and I want to point out for two different kinds of audience members. Mm-hmm. For those who have experienced trauma, I hope you're having an aha moment, hmm. a moment that might awaken for you the idea that there's not something wrong with you as a person, mm-hmm. but more so that you have had a type of experience that has limited your ability to access all of the things that you truly are and that your trauma and that your emotional state as a result of that, the things that might've happened in your life since then, that's not who you are. So that happiness, that joy, that feeling of contentment that you may not have been able to access, or those types of relationships that you feel you've been locked into, there is a way to move past those once you've been able to reaccess that deeper range of emotions that have been trapped down with the trauma. And to uh, the second type of audience member that we might have, you know, so someone who would be leading, someone who would experience trauma, What I'd encourage here is to not look at uh, people as a set of behaviors, but instead, if you are aware that they have experienced a trauma, really recognizing that the behaviors that are associated with managing those inhibitory feelings might be causing people in the workplace to act in ways that you're unaccustomed to. They might uh, disturb workflow. They might be difficult to manage. And the space here that I'd really encourage is to move beyond the ideas of good person or bad person, easy to work with or hard to work with, and really connect with the idea that someone is in the workplace and we are aware that they have experienced some kind of trauma, that the behaviors that you might find challenging, especially if they're new behaviors for this person, really are a reaction to them trying to manage, uh, manage these inhibitory emotions. It doesn't mean you have to do something with them. And again, uh, someone who hasn't been trained as a therapist or a counselor or a psychologist, please don't feel it's your job to go in and try and manage these for someone or help someone process this. But more that what I'd encourage you is that this is part of the discussion of how we can help people in the workplace. It's part of encouraging understanding of what someone who's gone through a trauma might be experiencing in their work world. Christian, is there anything you want to add into that? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing I wanted to uh, support around is around this idea that for that first portion of the audience that might be able to like, recognize or self-identify that they may have had a traumatic experience, I totally agree that um, one of the things that we, we will want to do, actually, is appreciate the defenses because they kept you safe. Yeah. They are the very things. So if we treat our defenses as something to be ashamed of, like, oh, like this just proves that everything I think about myself, that's actually just using anxiety to try to beat anxiety. It makes no sense to do that. Right. 
right? Yeah. So one of the things that we want to do is we want to love our defenses. It, it, like we want to get to a place where we can appreciate the defenses for the job that they've done. Right. That's where the compassion comes right. and, and, and the kindness to the self. So I think that's one thing. The, the second thing I would also point out is that around people who might struggle with mm, happiness, for instance, the thing about trauma is, is that you can't selectively numb an emotion. Mm. So if we had to numb one, it's had a, a global impact to kind of numb all. Right. It's not, and it's, of course, it's not like that black and white. I mean, if it's, it's not that we don't experience happiness or joy, but I, I suspect that what probably is more true is, is that when it does come in and its association with trauma, what ends up happening is, is then that's when the anxiety starts kicking in and it really kind of neuters that emotion from going and deepening. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where the, the potential lies for us that, um, when we have free access or free range to those emotional states and we can identify those emotional states, that's when we are living to our potential. It's not that life um, is easy, but it's easier. Okay. So I want to switch the conversation to the return to work. Mm. So for someone who has experienced a significant trauma in their life, and I, I want to check in with some terminology that I have been, that I have heard used in reference to trauma. And you can even help our thinking whether or not there's some kind of accuracy to this. So we've talked about panic attacks. Mm. We've talked about what it means to be triggered. Mm. I've heard reference to two kinds of trauma. I've heard reference to big T trauma Mm -hmm. and small T trauma. Mm. Could you tell us about that? Absolutely. That's great. Thanks. Um, Because this is a really important question about the differences between big T and small T trauma. You know, I think we collectively as a society have a general understanding of what big T trauma is, you know, with the widespread awareness of what PTSD is, um, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, I think we can understand and appreciate that if someone's been involved in a car accident or they've experienced sexual abuse, uh, those would be the big T traumas. Um, The small T trauma, uh, you know, in one sense, one way that I think about the small T is that it's not any less traumatic. It's that the small T indicates like it's that kind of like the the death through a thousand cuts it's like having that rep, you know repetitious like childhood developmental trauma you know um that there's love in the home but there's certain states that were not uh, permitted um you know you can't be angry or you can't be sad and that's the you know one way that i understand that the small t trauma or bullying mm-hmm. or bullying in the workplace mm-hmm. um so uh the small t trauma is you know, that kind of repetitious um, exposure uh, to stress um, that over the course of time, because it gets just too overwhelming, then we're like, we need to uh, find some way to shut those, that experience of being overwhelmed and alone. Um, Right. Uh, So the way that we look at that then is that big T trauma would be from a centralized event Mm -hmm. or a a cluster of events that were life changing. Mm Mm-hmm where small t trauma would be the the repetition of something. So it would be um, restriction of emotional states or bullying mm-hmm. or any of these things. Before we go any further, what would you say to, to the people who would um, be critics of such thinking? So for example, people who are saying like, you know, small t trauma, get over it. That's what everyone experiences. Like people get bullied. It made me the person that I am. Um, you know, this is just life. Don't be such a wimp. What would you say? Uh, to someone who would be a critic of of talking about small T trauma in that way? Well, um, my my first initial thought around was, like, if somebody is responding to trauma in that way, like, 
what, like my, my, my initial thought is that there's probably something else going on in their life that if they were open and honest with themselves would say that they're stuck. So that kind of degree of criticism that is leveled at it um, is in itself, I think, indicative of perhaps being traumatized. Okay. Because, you know, where's the compassion? Where's the kindness? What, what about the self, what about validating that if somebody is saying that this is what's going on for them, mm-hmm. If this was your brother saying this, not just a colleague, but if this was your sister saying this, if, if this was a good friend saying this, would we have the same response mm-hmm. to that person to say, well, come on, just get over it? Yeah. So in other words, like maybe the way to, for us to understand that is to say, well, do you truly believe that? Because, you know, if you kind of universally say, yeah, people like that should just get over it, um, would you say that to a best friend? Mm-hmm. So I hear quite often in the work world about... Um, conflict or bullying or um, people having a heightened sense of sensitivity. Mm. And uh, very often I hear within the corporate world, it's like, oh, they just need to get over it. Or I, as their leader, don't want to manage that. Like, I don't want to manage them, um, you know, being so affected by the people around them. And if we could say that some of these things actually are small t traumas and that people have either previously experienced a high level of small T trauma that has led to this space where then they're pushing that trauma down and they've got these inhibitory emotions, or they're experiencing it in the workplace now, they're having a lot of small T trauma. From your perspective, what would you suggest to a leader who's got someone or multiple people who are seemingly coming to them with a lot of small T trauma concerns? What, what would you say there? Well, I think to the leader who has the, their employees or their staff that's coming to them, I would just invite, just see what it would be like to be curious. Try try it out. Mm -hmm. Try to see what a little bit of kindness can go, you know, a little bit of compassion. Well, try it out to see what it would be like to validate their experiences. But but of course, I mean, if there's systemic problems and if there's ongoing chronological issues, I mean, you know, compassion and empathy is not doing his job, but I would be curious just to see what their experience has been being compassionate and mm-hmm. empathic and, you know, um, and validating right. and then sort of reassess. Right. So a starting place you'd suggest for leaders is become curious, mm-hmm. be willing to be open to the conversation, mm-hmm. um, show some empathy and really try and understand how they're feeling. Mm-hmm. So let me take it a, a step further. Sure. What about the leader who would then respond? Well, what if I can't turn off the faucet? What if I've turned on the faucet and this now just becomes a pattern where I'm now constantly fielding someone bringing me these complaints about these things mm-hmm. and I don't believe them to be uh, to be accurate or mm-hmm. as bad as they say. And that's something I hear a lot is it's not that it's inaccurate. Maybe they're having challenges with this person, but they're not as bad as, as they say. Mm-hmm. What would we say to leaders in a space like that? Well, I think it's different to assess what is a one-off versus something that's chronological. Mm. And so I think when it becomes a repetitious thing, you know, you know, if I can make a suggestion to the leader, I, that could be an opportunity to say, well, you know, to employee Bill, mm. um, well, Bill, this is the third time this month that you've come in being this upset, you know, and then we can start tying in a, a suggestion with a behavior. Like, I'm just wondering, you know, if there's something else going on in your life, like that's where the curiosity can come because now we have a, you know, we have a, a theme that's been developing here right, right, and, right. and, and paying attention to the theme. is not the same thing as paying attention to the isolated incident. 
Can you tell us the difference between the two? Well, I mean, like, say, for example, if we just take it out of work, say, you know, you have a problem in your relationship mm -hmm. and you communicate to your partner and like, you know, I really would appreciate if, you know, you wash the dishes. Right. Now, the first time that that doesn't happen, I think, you know, you can be kind of like, oh, okay, like, fine, it didn't happen. But if we're repetitiously saying, this is something that's really important to me, it's really important that you see me in this way, you know, I'm very disappointed and upset that this is not happening, and it's still, the answer is no, or there's forgetfulness, then we have a much bigger problem. So mm -hmm. something in, in isolation, like a behavior or, or work concern that's in isolation, um, is not the same, you know, if we bring empathy and compassion to that, it's not the same thing to bring empathy and compassion to that when it's the seventh time this month or the tenth time, you know, in a couple, okay. you know. Then we can become curious about what thematically is happening right. rather than just the event. So let's talk about people who have experienced a trauma hmm. and now they're either contemplating a return to work or back at work. What are some of the things um, as a counselor you could suggest they, they think about either as they're planning the return to work or as they're in the return to work. What are some things that someone who's experienced trauma should be considering? Mm. Well, if they are resonating with some of the, you know, for so someone who comes back to work and um, they need to um, still work. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I think one aspect that if, like this topic that we're having is resonating with them and this idea of the change triangle, you know, uh, that they can identify what is anxiety uh, what they can identify as shame or guilt and realize that that is something that is actually inhibiting them from feeling, then that in itself, that awareness can be quite profound and helpful to realize, ah, you know, I'm having this negative thought cycle going on here. I'm having some kind of critical thinking about myself. Oh, well, I mean, okay, that doesn't actually have to be my experience. And then we can bring some curiosity as to what's at the bottom of that triangle, which is what possible emotion am I ha having here? And would it be easier that maybe the anxiety is triggering fear or maybe the anxiety is triggering, um, being triggered by needing sadness or anger or something to that effect? Mm -hmm. Then I think that can be really helpful for anyone um, going back to work. Just being able to put a name to that experience and realize uh, that they have choices. Okay. Um, so when someone's returned to work or going to return to work and their work is unaware that they've experienced a, trauma, a traumatic event, mm. Should they tell anyone at work? Well, I, I mean, that's uh, whether someone should tell anyone at work, I think is really um, contingent on like how safe is that work environment? Mm. Um, you know, is it going to be something that's well received and understood with empathy and compassion and understanding and validation? Or is it kind of going to be met with what you had talked about, like get over it, get over yourself, get over your self indulgence? Mm. Um, you know, so. Uh, you know, I think that has to be assessed. Mm -hmm. Having said that, though, uh, perhaps if there's any questions about that, maybe we need to go to a GP or a doctor and get them to assess, and that maybe if the work environment isn't safe, that um, we use the cover of a GP, um, medical leave or whatever that may be, um, as a means to um, stop working. Because I think if we're throwing ourselves into a traumatic event and the, the work itself is re-traumatizing that. Mm -hmm. I'm not, you know, like I think the long-term effects of that is um, not good. So there's not a yes or no here. Right. It's really based on what your work environment is. Uh, and a thing I'd encourage any listener to consider here is you don't have to tell anyone mm. anything. And you don't 
not have to tell them. It is up to you. Um, what I would suggest is my experience as an executive coach is whatever decision you make, don't broadcast. And what I mean by that is some people do have very, very close work relationships. Keep in mind that sharing with those work relationships can come at a cost down the line, um, especially as we talked uh, about earlier, is that having a traumatic event can change the way that we deal with our relationships and how we engage with people. There's not a right or wrong here. However, if you do choose to share such a thing within the workplace, that means that you could be bringing that trauma into the workplace and unintentionally turn it into a conversation piece that you might feel you have to talk about with people. As an example, a worker that you might share a traumatic incident with might feel, well, gosh, I should check in with them or I should see how they're doing or we haven't discussed it in a couple of weeks. They might be trying to show you a kindness and instead might be bringing up something that's extremely painful and trigger you in the moment. On the flip side, it can also be very healthy to have the people around you understand what's going on for you. There isn't a right or wrong. However, the last piece that I would suggest here is the more that you give people personal information about yourself and about your life, the more that that can have an effect in your relationships in the workplace and how that information is used. My suggestion from my time within the corporate world is less is more and that if you need a safe person at work, for example, a great HR professional or a leader that you have a very strong relationship or a great colleague, and you do need to share, some, share this with them because it's part of your safety and health at work, that's totally okay. In that sharing, you don't need to share every single part, just the parts that are needed for someone to understand what you need to be safe at work. Christian, is there anything you'd add to that? I also think that, um, you know, it's also important to probably also ask that, um, you know, if you have somebody in your life that you can talk to, mm -hmm. right, like a loved one, someone, or a best friend, or whatever that may be, um, I don't think the need to be seen is required in all facets of our life. We just need one or two people that see us and can validate our experience, and that can make all the difference in the world. So another way to think about that is, is that our defenses that we've been exploring here, um, and we're not talking about removing these defenses. Mm. We're not talking about because we still need them, yeah, you know, yeah. we still need our psychological armor. The point is, is that if we wear our psychological armor at work, um, probably that's a really good place in one way. But if you're wearing your psychological armor in bed, you know, then that's probably uncomfortable. That's a really good way. <laughs> I just thought of someone wearing suit armor in, in bed. Um, it's an interesting thing because whether or not to tell or tell people at work is I'm, I'm asked about this all the time. And uh, I tend to answer very much just as you did. Um, there's not a right or wrong here. It's really about your work environment. And I, I, again, I'd really encourage people to historically think and recall how sensitive information has been dealt with in your workplace in the past. If you work in a, in a workplace where there are strong relationships, if people have a really good understanding of boundaries, and there's a sense of how to take care of really sensitive personal information, you're probably a little safer to get into that um, space of sharing with select people. And again, only what they would need to know to help you be safe in the workplace. If you're in a workplace that is on the other side of that spectrum, where traditionally sensitive personal information has been treated a little roughly, um, or there's less space for that conversation, 
or that perhaps things that have been shared before might be transmitted to others. That's a space where I would encourage a lot more caution around what you share. And the base level reason is when we've been hurt, we might have an instinct to hide that hurt. And that actually might make it tough for us to be in the workplace. But on the flip side, if we've had a really painful experience, we might have an instinct to say, well, I should share this with people so they understand. Again, that can hurt us in the workplace because we might be subtly re-traumatized every single time it's brought up, even if it's brought up from a, um, from a kind way, someone checking in. And again, how much we share about our traumas in the workplace should be considered that people might use this as uh, a justification. So for example, someone might say, well, you're just acting this way because you had this traumatic incident happen in your life. They might actually start applying that from a, in their mind what is a logical perspective. It's a very delicate decision about whether or not you share and how much you share. And I do really, again, encourage people here. This is the time to think through historically, how have things happened? Who am I sharing it with? And why am I sharing it with them? And finally, what do I want them to do with that information? As an example, if you are sharing something very sensitive with someone, I do encourage you to instruct them what you would like them to do with that information. For example, do you want them to check in with you or not? If you don't want that, it's okay to say, don't check in with me about it. This is my process. I just want you to know what's happening. Christian, is there anything else you'd add to that about whether or not we share within the workspace? Well, I think probably one thing that was coming to mind as you were speaking around was, um, if in doubt, don't. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. And I think another thing that, another definition of trauma, just to kind of support what you're talking about is, is that trauma is also can be defined as an overwhelming experience plus the experience of being alone mm -hmm. associated with that. Right. So on that note, if we're sharing with our colleagues and they don't get it, they don't see it, they kind of draw lines, this is, you know, this is an infringement on my, the professional boundaries. And, you know, I think there's a lot more risks associated with sharing at work mm -hmm. than potential benefits. Mm -hmm. um, and then it leads us into this experience of being alone right. further. It can be more trauma, you know, it can be just re-traumatizing right. um, what's happening in terms of a person's engagement with it. Yeah. So again, to be clear to the audience, um, it's not a yes or no. There are a lot of factors involved about whether or not you want to share. And I can appreciate anyone who would want to share because they feel I'm doing the right thing. You know, I've had this experience. It might impact my performance. I should tell my workplace. That's really sound reasoning. In that sound reasoning, though, we want to take the conversation further. And what could it mean for me going forward? Where will that information go? Will it make me feel more alone? Will I feel more triggered? So there's a lot to consider there. It's not a right or a wrong, but it is more than just a, well, should I do this because it's the right thing to do? you got to consider yourself and your healing in that. So, Christian, we talked a lot about uh, behaviors that are associated with managing you know, anxiety, shame. Um, mm -hmm. One of the ones that you'd mentioned was overworking. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, this is a really, really classic thing that we see in the workplace. And again, I want to be clear, not everyone, you know, if you look to your left and your right and you got two, you know, two people there that are just like overworkers, they're just into it, doesn't mean that they're harboring some deep trauma that they're dealing with. Um, we don't want to now start forecasting out for someone, well, this is what's going on for them. However, this can be a behavior that comes from this. Mm -hmm. So again, we're talking about someone now who's planning a return to work 
or they're now back in work after experiencing a traumatic event. What are some of these behaviors that they should really be aware of that they might be engaging in as now they're in the workplace? So are we here overworking being one? Yeah, so what, some of the behaviors um, that we need to uh, be on the lookout for um, when someone has experienced trauma and re-engaging with the workplace um, is, as you say, like the overworking and the perfectionism. And one thing I would just add to that, uh, Aram, is, is that I think perfectionism at work is fantastic. Mm -hmm. You know, I think overworking can be really, um, you know, that can be our community and, you know, it can be a lot of connection associated with that. Right. Um, you know, other things that are not great are perhaps the irritability and procrastination because these are the things that affect our job performance. But the, if we go back just to the overworking and the perfectionism, you know, great, you're, you're a perfectionist at work. Right. <laughs> Where are you not perfect? Mm -hmm. Where do you allow yourself to not be perfect? Mm. I think that if, if you find that perfectionism is extending in all aspects of your life, then I think that's interesting. You know, and that could be something to explore, you know, um, to, to try to find the balance. Um, or if you overwork in every aspect of one's life, um, where do you underwork? Where do you let yourself off? Where's that vulnerability? Um, you know, where do, where's that permission to be? Uh, so that's one of the things I would just invite as a, a way to find the balance. Mm. Uh, this is uh, really interesting because all of these uh, behaviors that we've talked about that uh, we use to manage um, inhibitory emotions, again, such as anxiety or guilt or shame, they're not all bad behaviors. Right. And, you know, it's tough to stamp behaviors with uh, good or bad. I mean, there are some behaviors we can just say, oh, it's not a good behavior. So, for example, like deep addictive behaviors, eh, it's probably not going to work out. It's not a great behavior. But for example, overwork. Uh, you know, if, we're, if I'm going to be self here, self-admitted, <laughs> I love what I do. I work super hard. Um, you know, I'm, I'm working really intense hours all the time. I work on the weekends. I travel for work. Um, working hard and really being into your work or passionate about it, mm -hmm. that's not necessarily a bad thing. And if it comes from a place where you're managing uh, types of emotions through that overwork, it can have all sorts of positive upswing. And as you said, perfectionism as well. The interesting thing for those people returning to the work world is, okay, this might be a way that you're coping. How can you keep that in a certain place and not have it detract from your life in other places? That's right. Yeah. So we don't want, we might want perfectionism at work or we might allow perfectionism at work. Want is a different word, but mm -hmm. we might allow it. Mm -hmm. How do we leave that at work and then allow us to be like imperfect at, at home? Totally. Totally. That's right. Um, exactly. And I think that that, if we have the balance of both, then we can really evaluate at that point. Mm -hmm. When is it perfectionism because it's self-serving in terms of brings me satisfaction mm -hmm. versus just a reactive, like, this is just what I do. Right. And there isn't the insight. I mean, I think also somebody who's returning to work and, you know, has suffered from some, you know, trauma, they're probably at risk of also being impacted negatively by their concentration mm -hmm. if they can't regulate it you know, keep their trauma contained, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, they might be more susceptible to addictive behaviors as well, mm -hmm. right? Which, you know, um, is something to monitor. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, some of the things I do see is, is that people's ability to concentrate gets really um, where they were able to concentrate before they struggled. And then, of course, the procrastination and the irritability are also signs that, mm -hmm. you know, you're no longer able to um, manage as mm -hmm. well as you 
we're managing. So some behaviors, uh, for example, like uh, really intensely working or um, perfectionism, they can't have a, a function within the work world. Mm-hmm. As long as we, again, in our return to work or in our work, if we can say, okay, I know I'm using these to help cope and I'll keep them at the work world. On the flip side, though, we've got others. Um, inability to concentrate. And as a, uh, a share here, when I have worked with people uh, in the work world as a coach who have experienced a trauma, some of, these, some of the things that I would hear from people would be, I would just find myself staring at the wall for 45 minutes. And I didn't mean to. It was almost like coming out of, out of a nap. Suddenly I was like, wow, I've been staring at the wall for 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. Or difficulty reading paragraphs mm-hmm. or um, difficulty uh, writing an email, just a deep dread that would come. Like, gosh, I've got to write this email. This email should take me 30 seconds just the idea of doing it, I can't do it. Mm-hmm. Then of course, leading to the procrastination. Mm-hmm. These are things that in our return to work, we should be monitoring and seeing if we're experiencing. So let's say we're experiencing them. we got our checklist, you know, like, hey, I'm doing these things. Um, I'm procrastinating. I am having a difficulty concentrating. Perhaps I've become explosive at work. I'm really reactive to things where I wasn't before. Then what? What do we do? You know, and also just um, what we do when you start tracking all those symptoms, um, you know, the procrastination and uh, irritability. The one thing, it just occurred to me, Haram, that the one thing we also haven't been talking about is disassociation. Mm-hmm. And so as you were sharing, you know, like the, the difficulty with concentrating or someone's just staring at a wall, I'm, I'm reminded, oh, well, okay, well, that's right. I mean, one of the big symptoms associated with trauma is disassociation, mm-hmm. the disconnection from the self literally so that you are present, but you're not connected to mm-hmm. your experience. And, and could you give us an example of how that would show up, just so our, our, our listeners would understand? Sure. I mean, I think we can use the spectrum. I mean, I think every single one of us has read a paragraph, um, and you're like, what did I just read? <laughs> right. Right? right? Totally. Right. Totally. Um, so we all, we all experience disassociation, mm-hmm. um, and then it's not always maladaptive. Mm-hmm. But I think... When there is this, um, you know, you're connected to, uh, or not connected, actually, I should say, that you're not connected to the body. You're not Mm. connected to your experience. It's almost like a dream state of sorts. And I think the thing to consider for a moment is is that if we go back to that change triangle and we talk about the top of that triangle and the defenses and the behaviors that are inhibitory emotions, there's a cost to that. It actually takes a disproportionate amount of our energy to maintain you know, those defenses and that anxiety, it, it takes away. In other words, that natural state of allowing our emotions to be. So in other words, if that energy is being utilized to keep those emotions at bay, that can and will affect your ability to focus and concentrate and remain present. Um, you might be able to do it at work, but it will come out in other aspects of your life, mm-hmm. like sleep and, and stuff like that. So, you know, it's, it's interesting that you say that because this uh, disassociation, uh, I have worked with, again, uh, many people as an executive coach who have experienced a trauma and will talk about, you know, I'm, I'm going through my days and I can barely remember what I did and nobody's noticing. I'm showing up exactly how I show up. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody nobody has said anything. I can't remember anything I do. I'm not doing anything that I feel is like really like I'm not like passionate about anything. I'm not super excited about anything. I'm able to show up and do my job, but I'm I'm here, but I'm not here. Mm-hmm. Would that capture that? That would capture it. Yeah. And um, and I think, you know, there is that moment where, you know, maybe for a minute or two, you're 
blanking out, but if you're blanking out on a 45 minutes on a wall, mm-hmm. you know, is it possible that the reason why you're, you're blanking out is, is because it's, you know, like you're spending all this energy and time trying to keep these, you know, either the memories associated with the trauma or the feelings down at bay. Yeah, pushing them down. Pushing and, them down. And even those times you might be having reoccurring intrusive thoughts. Right. But even those reoccurring intrusive thoughts are intended to push down. That's right. Um, all right. So we've got this. We've got these these behaviors that are in the workplace. Some of them can be beneficial for the workplace, for us as professionals and, and for the team. Mm-hmm. We might have increased output. That output might be dead on, like maybe perfect. Mm-hmm. But we've got other ones that um, really can take us away from the workplace, can make us difficult to deal with or make it unbearable to deal with people, Mm -hmm. Uh, any of these things. So we're in the workplace and we're experiencing these things. We're tracking them. Then what? What do we do? Well, I think the tracking is the big one. I mean, I think if you can self-track where you are, you know, like, oh, okay, that's anxiety, that's shame, that's guilt. Okay, this is perfectionism. But, you know, that's okay because, you know, at home I'm the imperfect dad or whatever that may be. Um, then I think you can evaluate based on that tracking to see if that's like naming something is actually really, um, really important first step towards the healing process. And then you can kind of reevaluate, uh, and you can also reevaluate based on these behaviors because the behaviors really are indicators of whether or not you are coping well, mm-hmm. or maybe the behaviors, the negative behaviors, I should say, are getting worse. Okay. So I, the, the invitation here is to track to see, you know, are things stabilizing or, they, you know, by naming it, is it getting better or, you know, is it getting worse? Well, it's interesting. So the tracking is a way of returning yourself to yourself. Mm-hmm. That's right. You've increased your awareness of what you're doing. It also allows you to monitor, are these things becoming more intrusive or less intrusive? Right. Um, here's one of the spaces that I can re- recommend that your job isn't the place where you need to process your trauma. Mm-hmm. As you're tracking things and you're becoming more aware of yourself, this is a great time to seek uh, support outside of the workplace in regards to a therapist or support groups. And some people uh, want to do it on their own. And, you know, there's there's not a space where you must go to a therapist or you must go to mm-hmm. a group. There are a lot of different ways of processing these things. But one of the things that we can recommend is that you want to get unstuck somehow. Mm-hmm. You want to remove this this thing that is pushing down your emotions or keeping your emotions from being in that space. So if you're back in the workplace, you are experiencing these things, it's great to start with tracking, really becoming aware so you return to yourself. So for that employee that goes back to work and um, needs some strategies uh, to help regulate, you know, one thing just to uh, kind of emphasize enough is the importance of just being able to breathe and to pay some attention to, you know, if you're at your cubicle or your desk or whatever that is, to, you know, if you're feeling overwhelmed and triggered, to give yourself an opportunity just to have both feet on the ground, and, you know, take a breath or two, you know, that um, you can't, you know, the anxiety is going to really struggle when you are conscientious in terms of bringing attention to the breath and filling your body. And, um, and that, I think, one of the benefits of that is, is going to happen as a result of that is that you're going to be able to work with that situation in a way in which um, you were not going to be able to work because you were just in this sympathetic nervous system, over aroused, triggered. If I if I could ask a couple questions about that, sure. And for our audience to understand, uh, I want to be really specific about this. When we're saying pay attention to your breathing, mm. this might be a space where people again 
might get a little tough on themselves and be like, oh, that's just that hippie kind of new age stuff. It's something I'd read on Pinterest. I'm not going to do it. Actually, there's a really physiological need to do this. Mm -hmm. Um, Christian had mentioned the sympathetic nervous system. To break this down, the sympathetic nervous system is attached to our fight or flight, and the parasympathetic uh, nervous system is uh, attached to our states of being more relaxed. One is not on and the other is off. It's almost as if there's a constant negotiation between the two. When we're in a state of heightened anxiety, our sympathetic nervous system is taken over. We stop breathing in through our nose and we start breathing in through our mouths. Our muscles become tense. Our hearts beat a little faster. We're getting pumped up with adrenaline. And that's because our body is saying, well, I'm about to do one of two things. I'm either going to fight or I'm going to run away. So by becoming aware of our breath, we are actually able to engage further with the parasympathetic system through doing the right kind of breathing. And uh, what Christian had mentioned first was put both feet on the ground. And why is that? Well, because it works. I mean... (laughs) But, you know, I mean, but it, it's it groundedness. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, I just find that when we have that kind of degree of alignment, and I, I'm afraid this may sound increasingly more hippie, mm-hmm. but, but be that, try it out. I mean, I mean, let's put it this way. You know, anything that we're talking about here is to be tried and have your own experience with, right. but I think both feet on the ground, breath, um, balanced, integrated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and and also, we're not taking away from hippies here. We, no. we love our hippie friends. My my uh, wonderful partner is is a bit of a hippie. Mm-hmm. So we start with our feet on the ground. Right. What about the rest of what we do when we're being aware of our breath, our breathing? Well, I think in that moment, you know, if you're focusing on a deep breath, I mean, uh, you know, belly breathing or just paying attention to long breaths. Mm-hmm. Um, is going in, in through the nose. It, yeah, it, it, right in through the nose, all the way into our into our diaphragm. Really, let that belly get big. That's correct. Hold it in there for a bit. Breathe out through the mouth. Totally. Okay. Totally. Okay. And then I think you can reevaluate. You know, and like you're just really setting your body up for success here, um, and you're just giving yourself a moment and really trying to uh, address that hyper aroused state through breath. And that will regulate the heart and it will regulate other aspects. And, and then we can reevaluate. Okay. Um, and again, there is, uh, this is really about the physiology, mm-hmm. that this is how we engage with that parasympathetic system. And do know that the sympathetic nervous system, I mean, it's great. It serves a lot of, if I ever need to fight or run away, I'm glad it's there. Right. Uh, especially in modern times, mm-hmm. we can be finding it really tripped off quite often. And if you've experienced a trauma, definitely this is something that it can be very easy to have that pop off. You want to be able to manage that by getting nicely snug in with that, your ability to bring in that parasympathetic system to help you manage. All right. So that's one strategy we've talked about. What else? Yeah. um, And, you know, one thing just to add to that piece, uh, Aram, is is that um, from my understanding, the body uh, or the mind can't, or the body, I guess, can't distinguish um, what is a physical threat and what is an emotional threat. Mm Mm-hmm. So again, like we have this evolutionary response that is designed to respond to, you know, our rhinoceros bearing down on us. Um, but we have the same kind of physiological response when we've been yelled at by right. our boss or something to that effect. So, mm-hmm. you know, bringing the breath work, integrating 
um, is really good. Another thing that we can be um, looking at is that if we recall that change triangle again and we remember what was up in the top right-hand corner, uh, not all of our uh, defenses are bad, you know? So, you know, watching a cute cat video to help regulate the system or taking a walk. Um, yes, you are trying to uh, disconnect from your feelings, but you're also bringing a, a degree of conscientiousness and, and a, a shift in attention that, um, which is okay, which is, you know, that's why we have watch a, you know, if you're at work and you're, or you're at home and you're aroused in a triggered response way, then watching Netflix and a distraction or whatever that may look like is healthy or a bubble bath or some kind of scented something at the desk, mm -hmm. you know, uh, just to kind of trigger a different response that helps to relax the system. Yeah. And uh, to bring in that language, um, trigger doesn't necessarily have to have only a negative implication that we're now triggered into an anxious state. Mm -hmm. We can trigger a positive state. Mm -hmm. We can use mm -hmm experiences and um, uh, tools, for example, like a, um, watching Netflix or, or going for a walk as a way of checking out of something so we can re-trigger a calmer, more serene state so that we can continue to be in that workspace. So are there any other um, tips that we could talk about how we could manage some of these things? No, I think that the, just recognizing that all defenses are not bad mm -hmm. and there's healthier defenses against feeling and to give permission. <laughs> Um, and awareness, and then with the breath work, and then you can reevaluate. All right. Uh, a thing I'd add in here um, around talking about it at work, that if you have made the decision to share um, your experience, uh, a cautionary note that I would give, in, in fact, I'll reframe it as an encouragement, is that talking about an emotional experience or a painful experience or a traumatic experience can actually become a bit addictive in terms of a pattern mm. and going to the same well and drinking from the same well. So for example, if we do decide to share with our leader or with a friend at work or with an HR partner, it can become a pattern of behavior to go and constantly or continually discuss this event as a means of what it seems like processing, but instead it's actually a, a sense of like stimulation and distraction. Mm -hmm. And this is something I'd really recommend to be very cautious because not only is it not helping you process the emotion, it actually can re-traumatize and re-trigger you. Yeah. You know, one thing I'll add to that is that if you do choose to share with somebody, mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't want to open up, you know, another very large topic, but we have to see how, what our story is or what our, are telling is doing to that other person. It's not just enough to just know what's true for you. You have to see what the impact of that is on somebody else. Yeah. So, you know, that's the simultaneous capacity to be feeling what's going on in the body and then dealing, it, being in, in relationship. Now, the problem here is, is that if you've been traumatized, that probably has an impact on your attachment style and that capacity to be able to feel what's going on for you and deal and see how that impacts somebody else is maybe gonna be compromised so I would just, you know, highlight that to your listeners, just to be aware. It's not enough just to share. It's to see what that impact of that sharing is having on that other person. Are they maintaining eye contact? Are they seem really engaged? Are they trying to move away from the water cooler? You know, like, so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, that's really fascinating. And we are in our last movement of our conversation, which we're heading towards, we are going to talk about um, for colleagues of people who have experienced trauma or for leaders, mm -hmm. what are some of the things we could suggest there? But the last thing I want to touch base about mm -hmm. is something you'd mentioned earlier, which was isolation mm -hmm. for people who have experienced trauma. Mm -hmm. So again, we're considering a return to work or we're back in work. And 
a sense of being alone in a crowd um, mm. or otherness. Mm-hmm. The idea that I've had this thing that perhaps I've shared with people or I haven't, sh- or, or I have shared with people, but nobody here knows what it's like, or they don't know what it's like to be in my skin and that real sense of just being alone. What can we talk about or what can we discuss here that's going to be helpful for our audience around how they manage that and how they can be aware of that? Yeah, I mean, this, I think, gets to the root uh, around of what trauma is, that experience of aloneness. Um, So, you know, to manage the aloneness um, is not something we can do independently. It goes without saying, but, you know, I think that this is one of those um, instances whereby uh, we need somebody else to, if we feel alone in the crowd, um, that aloneness needs to be, um, we need to stay away from that at all cost. And that's where the anxiety and the inhibitory emotions come up. Um, that's why we engage in these behaviors to help us to disconnect from the feelings. Because it's that unbearable sense of aloneness that um, we need distance from. Um, if that's something that is happening, you know, it does encourage that we need, um, because we're just social mammals, we're social creatures, we do need somebody in our life that we feel safe and secure with, connected to. Mm-hmm. And in that secure sense of attachment, um, those feelings that were needed uh, come to the fore or that, you know, can be negotiated. Um, we're just hardware to be seen in that particular way. Um, and so I guess what I'm, what I'm alluding to is, is that if that is your experience to be alone in that alone in the crowd, that's probably an indication of the small T trauma. If there's nothing that you can really point to that has happened in your life that uh, falls into that big T trauma way. And then it's not something that, you know, say through meditation, you can just will yourself away um, that you need to um, diagnose the problem. And then, then the way in which we deal with that unbearable sense of aloneness is to find some kind of connection. And that's where therapy can be very helpful um, to have someone skilled in that particular way to create that secure form of attachment. And then what can happen is once that sense of security is is established, then those feelings that were necessary come to the fore. And then we've become really skillful, like, okay, like, this is what it means to be connected to my emotions. And you know, and then we become really skilled drivers of, you know, we know when to apply the gas and, you know, be connected to our emotional states because this is a safe environment. And then um, connected to uh, the brakes, which is the anxiety, um, and we need to shut down. Okay. So now we're going to enter into our last movement of the discussion. Uh, we're going to look at it from the perspective of people who are the colleagues of someone who has experienced a trauma, or we're the leader of someone who has experienced this. And we're wondering what we could or should do to help. The first thing I want to touch base on, and you'd mentioned it in, in, the, in the last section that we talked about, was if someone chooses to share their um, experience with trauma in the workplace, they might not be aware of what that sharing, the impact that sharing can have on their audience. So let's talk about that a bit. If you're on the receiving end of that, so someone has shared with you a traumatic incident and you're a colleague or their um, their leader, and what you're hearing is actually painful or disturbing or even traumatizing to you, what should you do? Well, I think the first thing uh, that you need to be considering 
um, if you're hearing that is, uh, you know, is this a one time first off, you know, thing by this colleague, you know, because I think that if this is the first time you're hearing something about this and this is out of character and, um, then I think our response can be one of empathy and compassion and validation. And that can go a long way of, you know, validating that person's experience. And again, I think we evaluate that based on to what degree, what's the frequency of this, right? So that's the first one. Mm -hmm. The second one is, is that if this is an ongoing chronological problem, then um, clearly the person that's confiding in you is not getting the healing, if you will, or it's not having the impact that there, there's a repetitious quality to this. And then we, you know, that empathy and that compassion is not enough. Right. Um, and something I'd like to add on to that, and I'd suggest again from my, my time working within organizations, um, it's a great intention to have to be willing to connect with people and to hear about their lives and to offer a level of support. It's not within anyone's job description to be the therapist for their team. And different people have different levels of comfort around this. Something that I would deeply suggest to people is really understanding what your boundaries are. Mm -hmm. I'd also encourage the thinking that if you are open to that, if you have demonstrated to people that you are open to being in everything with them, you are essentially saying, bring me all of your stuff. You don't need to do that in the workplace. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make you a cold, mean person if you decide to not do that. Mm -hmm. In fact, we all have different levels of uh, ability to be in that space and, and to help or to harm. So what I encourage people uh, here is to really understand what you're really comfortable with, what works for you in the workplace, and what you're either intentionally or unintentionally messaging to people about your comfort about hearing things. The second thing that I'd recommend that if someone brings something up to you that makes you feel uncomfortable, I do recommend that you are very clear that this is uncomfortable for you and you set a boundary. A boundary doesn't have to be harsh. It doesn't have to be mean. However, we should feel clear or we should feel free to be clear about that. And I encourage warm language, but short and direct sentences. In that, if your boundaries that you have set aren't being respected, I deeply recommend bringing this to the attention of your leader or your HR partner. Again, it's not in your job description to be the team's therapist. And we can fall into those patterns with people. And there's some benefits and there's some dangers. One of the dangers, though, is that we find ourselves being locked into repetitive conversations that are actually harmful for us. One more thing that I'd add in is if someone brings something to you that is a very serious trauma and you have deep concern for them, you can encourage a state of partnership of bringing this to the appropriate audience. So for example, if it's a work colleague and you really feel like, hey, maybe you should take this to HR, you can encourage them and even volunteer to go with them to share that conversation. They may turn you down and that's their decision to make. And of course, you can't just share someone else's story. We, we must avoid that at all times. However, if it's something that you're very concerned about, you can encourage them to go with you to HR, or perhaps they could talk to the leader if they have the right kind of uh, relationship, it's the right kind of environment. 
This is really important of the sense of people often feel they need to do something with it. You don't need to do anything with anything. But if you choose to do that, there are a couple routes. A, you can listen. However, if it's very serious or if it's repetitive, you can help them make some decisions around what they want to do with that. And finally, if it's inappropriate or if it's just overwhelming, let's say it's not inappropriate, but it's too much for you, you can set a healthy boundary. Anything you want to add to that, Christian? Well, as you were speaking, Ram, I was just really aware that when we talk about healthy boundaries, mm -hmm. uh, that's so much about being able to pay attention to your anger mm. and being able to make space for that. That's going to, your body is going to let you know if this is something that's appropriate or not, or it's something that you're comfortable with. So if somebody uh, feels comfortable with their experience of anger, then that no is going to naturally come out, not just in the words that they speak, but also in their body. And that's going to be important to be able to communicate in a, in a regulated type of way. Um, and I'm, I'm saying that for the person that might feel like they're being the therapist for the team or whatever that may be, right. that if they find that they're in their in that role, then they may want to investigate what is their relationship to anger. Do they see anger as a healthy thing? Do they see something as anger as a somehow a primitive emotion? Mm -hmm. Like, and if they do, right, they are suspicious of their anger. And that makes it really difficult to be able to establish boundaries. Okay. Now, without getting into what would be company policy, and these would be things that would be set by company policy around their mental health um, policies or uh, any of those things, how companies would work with employee assistance programs or where HR would step in on certain things. I do want to consider as this last part of our conversation, what's some advice that we can give to leaders who have team members who are experiencing a trauma? And this is a trauma that they have been forthright. They do know about. So we're not going to look at anything from a speculative nature, like what might be going on for someone. But what if we have someone who's experienced a big T trauma? What are some of the things that we could suggest to leaders in terms of how they engage with those employees? Well, I mean, I, I wonder for the, for the leaders, you know, if they're looking at how to um, provide leadership around mental health issues or around traumatic experiences, I think one of the first things that we would want to assess is, well, you know, is, are, are there trainings around that, mm. right? Are there trainings associated with, you know, burnout? Are there trainings associated with, you know, um, stress? So I think having a conversation and a dialogue is already huge because, you know, you're starting to put this into the workplace. It's starting to become a common language. Um, and I think that would be a really great foundation if that's not something that's already put into place. Mm. I think the second thing that they can do after that um, is then we can start bringing that degree of sensitivity and empathy and compassion to isolated situations. And one thing that might be really useful for leaders is to, um, like, how would I even begin a conversation to suggest to somebody that they might want to talk to somebody or... Mm -hmm. And I think you link it back to behaviors. You know, you say, well, you know, like three times this month we've been having this conversation and I really want to help out. Uh, however, I'm just aware that this seems to be a bigger problem. You know, how, are you talking to somebody? Like, you know, if we can link it back to something specific that's affecting work performance, mm -hmm. then I think that makes the conversation mm -hmm. uh, much easier and um, available. Uh, and I think that's fantastic. Uh, something I want to add in here. If you are a leader who has a team member who's experienced trauma and they've disclosed this to you, you cannot suggest to them, hey, you should go talk to a therapist. And even if that comes from a really, really great place, it can come across as prescriptive, 
um, as if you're diagnosing them with something. Uh, it can come across as cold, even if it's coming from the right place. And there can be a stigma that's attached to it. Uh, in this space, that if, if you're experiencing this and you do have a team member who has disclosed to you that they've experienced this, and you can see the impact on their performance or the way that they're interacting, the absolute first thing that I encourage you to do is speak to your HR partner. HR partners are a wonderful resource for this kind of information um, and for the strategy of how you can truly help. And the other place is that not all companies have um, policies around this. As Christian mentioned earlier, this is a relatively new area of thought for businesses, which is really why we're doing this podcast. So the idea here that is if something is happening, you should talk to your HR partner immediately. If there's not an internal resource, there are a lot of great, really, really strong resources within the community that partner with businesses around mental health awareness and strategy on how to cope with it. Um, in that space, the executive coaches that you um, may be working with in your organization either have some kind of background as therapists or counselors or psychologists, or they should be able to recommend someone. But my big, big suggestion here is don't go it alone. Don't feel that you need to be their therapist and certainly do not suggest to someone they need to get a therapist. However, you can inquire, you know, is this the only venue in which that you're seeking to, to talk about these things? Mm -hmm. Anything else you want to add in there, Christian? No, I think just it might be really just on that note. Um, curiosity always goes a long way um, than making a statement. Yeah. So... So ask the questions. Ask the questions, you know, yeah. um, bring curiosity. Um, that gives people, uh, employees, choices. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, this is all about choices. Um, trauma can kind of steal those away from us. And mm -hmm. one of the things that I really encourage in terms of thinking here is as a leader, you might feel you need to have the answers. You might feel like you have a responsibility to safeguard how this person, how anyone goes through an experience like this. It's okay just to be another human with a human who's in pain. It's okay to just to be there in that space and take that time professionally. If you find yourself outmatched, it's not the person on the other end. It's this significant trauma that's been, um, that they're carrying with them. And again, the concern isn't you and them. It's you, them, and this third thing that's involved. Your job there isn't to lead their trauma. Their trauma is their trauma. Your job is to lead them. A good, healthy way is to listen, become curious, be in the conversation, and then direct and help as the opportunities open up and as is in accordance with the policies of your company. Um, well, Christian, this was a great conversation today. Mm. I've really enjoyed it, and your expertise and wisdom have been so powerful for us. As we're closing off, I want to know, is there anything else that you want to add in? No, I just really have um, valued our time together today. It's such an important topic. Uh, around about the effects of trauma and not the big T trauma, but the small T and the development on how that affects the workplace. So I'm really just delighted to be having this conversation to see how um, this awareness is um, moving into uh, really important uh, sectors of our life. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. And, uh, you know, we'll leave this off. This is a great conversation. We appreciate your time. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. What a great discussion. And as I said earlier, at some point in our lives, many of us will experience a trauma outside of work that will significantly impact us. So I want to again thank Christian for joining us today 
and helping us understand how we can manage our trauma as we return to work. Thanks for joining us for our second episode. And until next time, this has been One Step Beyond. Beyond.